think the main reason why I've really been looking forward to speaking with you, Georgia, is because your practice focuses solely on working with adult participants, especially the elderly. So how did that journey start for you as a practitioner and what influenced your direction of practice? Yeah, that's a really good starting question. So it all began nearly 10 years ago and I had just completed my BA honours degree at the University of Chichester in performing arts and music and it was the summer And I was about to embark on a master's degree in applied theatre at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. And in that summer break, like many students, I needed a job. So I was looking for different opportunities. And a care home, which was very close to where I lived at that time, they were looking to recruit um, what is known as an activities assistant or an activities coordinator. And so... I thought I would go for it. I had had no uh, prior experience of working with older adults. I hadn't had a particular affiliation with adults aged over 65. It wasn't as if I'd had a really bond with a grandparent or anything like that. Um, But the job advert really spoke about companionship and friendship. And I thought that that would be something really valuable to be able to create with another being and something that I could get a lot from personally. So I got the job and I went into that role very, very naive, no idea what to expect at all. My assumption, which was very much based on um, an ageist stereotype, is that this collection of older people would be perhaps very quiet, very still, very docile, And they were the absolute opposite. Um, I had the absolute honour of working with over 100 residents who were vibrant and fun and passionate, opinionated, determined, resilient, and just completely opened my eyes to what, what life can be like when you are over 65. And when I worked in that environment, The main role was to provide a series of activities that the residents could engage with and enjoy and stimulate them and present opportunities to to still actively live and participate in whatever way that may look like for them. And so we did things like bingo and flower arranging um, and bell ringing, and that was great fun. But I couldn't help but wonder if perhaps we could do more. And... I couldn't help but think that one day their story will very much become my story because people are living longer and more and more people are needing to be in receipt of care in some capacity. And I considered, well, what would I want my life to be like if I was living in a care home? Now, at this point, I had no idea that applied theatre with older adults existed. I had no concept of creative ageing. But what I did know is that I am deeply passionate about theatre and storytelling. And I thought, well, what would happen if perhaps we created um, a drama group here? What what if we created a care home theatre company? So I went to my colleagues at the time and the home manager and I proposed the idea and they agreed to it. um, But they were hesitant and uncertain of what exactly this would look like. And then I approached the residents who very generously agreed to take part 
And again, I think we're slightly nervous and thought, what is she going to get us to do? Because theatre to many people is quite an abstract concept. But long story short, six months later, we had a fantastic group of older people who were regularly creating theatre in many different ways. And I started to see not only the positive impact that it was having on the older residents, but actually on the staff, on their family members and on the care home as a culture and as an environment. And it was completely transforming that space from being one where it's very much care which is given and received and is activity orientated so we, we must do this in the morning then we go on to do the next task and then we have lunch to one which was very much creating an even playing field because as the resident or their family member and staff were taking part in the sessions nobody had really engaged with theatre before. So they were all in the same boat in that sense of being slightly apprehensive, uncertain of what was going to come, but then they were also very willing to give it a go and to have fun and be playful. So that's where it all began. Excellent, very interesting. And I think it's always that I'm sure that there's many practitioners, like we all have that in common, don't we, No no matter who it is, that we're working with or what group we're a part of is that we're working with people whose experiences of drama or theatre as a participant is non-existent and and we have to find that way as practitioners at our entry point I guess so what were some of the activities that you used in order to get your participants involved with the the sort of applied ideas that you were you were starting to cultivate so one thing that I really closely observed within the culture of the home is that tea was very integral to the residents' lives. So I would begin each session with us enjoying a cup of tea, and that would be the first point of access. So it was an opportunity for people to come together to gently start to connect and to have conversation and to also feel a sense of relaxation and becoming comfortable in the space. And then once we'd enjoyed our tea and our cake, I would start to gently speak to them about storytelling was our starting point. And the reason I started with this idea of storytelling is that I believe that theatre fundamentally is just telling stories. And that is something that we've been doing since the dawn of mankind, whether that was sitting around um, a fire telling stories or to today, where people are using social media to share their story. So these stories, I wanted to create them in a very subtle way. And I knew that it was important to create an environment where there was no right or wrong, but rather I would embrace what they would do. So I very much drew upon the work of Anne Bastings, who has worked a lot in care homes and with older adults who have a dementia diagnosis. And she uses images to create story in a framework which she calls time slips. So I took inspiration from that. Firstly, I brought just in hundreds of different images and I put, we had a very, very large lounge. So I placed them all the way around the lounge and we would explore them. And I would say to participants, just pick one that you think is interesting. And they would do that. And then I say, okay, now let's turn to your, the person next to you and share what made you pick it. 
And then I'd ask some very, very subtle questions such as, well, who's in the picture? Where do you think they are? How old are they? Very much as Anne Basing advises. And then slowly we would create a story. And then once we had these series of characters and narratives that existed, I thought, well, we need to develop this. So then the second phase was bringing those stories to life. And we did that through costume, um, exploring different textures, different ways of dressing. We did that through music, um, you know, what sort of songs might this character be listening to? We would write um, little sort of um, bi biographies about characters, their star signs, you know, who their first love was, who their boyfriend was. And then we would improvise things quite often. So it was very gentle and very organic. And I think what really was the overarching thing was also ensuring that I was being led by them. And so I led the group by following the group. So if a participant was very, very keen to talk about one particular picture and felt very passionate about that, then we would go with that and see where they would run with it. Georgia, in relation to the participants, were there any barriers in relation to accessibility, ability? How did you manage to overcome those and what sort of barriers did you face? Um, I think it's interesting, this notion of barriers. I would say that there, there were no barriers. There were um, personal needs in which I had to discover and meet. And there were cultures, similarly, that I had to engage with and negotiate. So for example, um, working in a care home is a very structured environment. And so you have to find the space within that daily structure where your work can take place. And that takes a lot of negotiating with the care home manager, but also the staff. And I think what's really key in work particularly in care homes, is that you build a very positive relationship with the staff because they very much act as the bridge between the participant and you. And so really embedding myself within the daily rituals and rhythm of the home became pivotal to the success of the work and ensuring that it could take place. Um, you would also have physical considerations. So taking the time to consider um, the dexterity of people's hands, would writing tasks be appropriate? Um, taking time to acknowledge different levels of visual ability, the same with hearing. So really being conscious of where I'm positioning myself in the room. So for some participants, I would make sure that they were right in front of me so that they could read my lips. And for others, I would make sure I was next to them so they could directly hear me. Um, you would have other considerations um, such as wheelchairs and walking aids and making sure that there was enough space in the room so that those people could comfortably enter and exit and partake. Um, and I think in terms of project delivery, whenever you're doing a task and you're working um, in such an environment, you almost have to have two or maybe even three versions of that task so that people can engage in, at different access points. So for example, um, if I was going to do a physical warm up, uh, which may be as simple as walking around the space or just doing stretches, I would obviously create a version of that for those who were um, confidently mobile and could 
physically move their bodies. And I would also do a version of it at the same time for those who perhaps felt more comfortable being seated or were more wheelchair based. So it's really you know, finding the person-centred approach within this work and acknowledging that this isn't a homogenous group. You know, there are lots of individuals within this one particular space. And how can I meet their needs and work with them and, in, and embrace them? It's so interesting. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. Am I right in thinking that this work then developed into the Chatter Project? Is that right? Well, the Chatter Project happened many, many years later. So after I worked in the care home, I then completed my master's degree in applied theatre. And I was very fortunate um, as I was just submitting my dissertation for my MA, I was then offered a role at at London Bubble, which is based in Rotherhithe. And at London Bubble, I led their their Creative Elders programme. So I was there for two years and that was working with old adults um, in South London, so places such as Bermondsey and Peckham, um, which was fantastic. And I learned so much working at London Bubble um, and really learning about how you make theatre that is with the participants, for the participants and most importantly, by the participants and creating work that speaks to them. And then I decided to embark on a freelance career after that because I really wanted to finesse my practice as a practitioner and as an artist. And I was fortunate enough to be employed by Spare Tire, where I was the lead artist on one of their projects that took place in a day centre, engaging with older adults who are living with dementia. And that was called the Together Project. And so I worked there for two years and that was Another massive learning curve, you know, working in a day centre is very different to working in a care home or a hospital environment. And then I was then contracted by the Chichester Festival Theatre, who is the project partner in the Chatter Project. And I started off working for them again on a freelance basis, working in care homes in West Sussex. And similarly, that had an emphasis of storytelling and those initials years were using props and artifacts from the theatre to inspire storytelling and you know things progress things evolve life happens and I'd come to a point where I knew the power of this work and I knew how important it was that we had these projects but I was becoming frustrated that due to lack of financial support these projects were often short-lived So they may take place for as little as six weeks or the longest project I've worked on had funding for three years. And research shows us that for intervention to be truly effective, they must span many years and must be consistent. And I thought, well, how can I contribute to making this happen? And the most obvious way was to go back into higher education to undertake a PhD and to contribute research and evidence which could robustly support the claims that myself and my peers are making about the importance of applied theatre with older adults. So I went back and I was lucky enough to be accepted at the University of Portsmouth. And this is where the partnership with the Chichester Festival Theatre comes in. 
because my study is is investigating the impact of regular theatre interventions with adults aged over 65 who live in the community in southeast England. And the way that we are measuring that impact is with a partnership with the Chichester Successful Theatre um, who run the Chatter Project. And so the Chatter Project is a fortnightly intervention with older adults who live in the West Sussex region. That's an incredibly smart way of pursuing the research we'll come back to that because there's there's a few things that you mentioned that I would really love for you to elaborate on further so we'll come back first I just want to know um, the six workshops with the older adults how did you go about transitioning from workshops into rehearsals and then a performance do the participants at the start of the process know that they're contributing through a rehearsal process ideas that will ultimately shape a performance how do you as the leader or or as the director i guess go about that process well i think if you're working on a six-week basis with older adults i would not recommend uh, working towards a final product it just is not anywhere near the amount of time that you would require I think it'd also be tricky to do that with young people because you know when I worked at London Bubble I led their youth theatre um, and our end of term performances would take 12 weeks and sometimes that wasn't long enough um, but the way I work with older adults um, is process-led not product-led and I really draw upon the works of Augusto Boal and Paolo Freire in a sense of that the participants are the beating heart of the project so I never enter a project with a set idea or agenda of what I want to achieve I go in and I openly say I don't know what we're going to do and I've been fortunate enough to be contracted by arts organizations who have been comfortable with me doing that and have had the confidence in me that that approach is going to work and so what I do first is I embark on a period of what I describe as foraging and this was a term that was first introduced to me actually um, by a man called Jonathan Pefferbridge who was the creative director at London Bubble and foraging is used in the initial stages of a participatory um, project where you you cast your net far and wide and you use it as an opportunity to gather artifacts and insights about your participants. And I use this with older adults to really gauge well, what are they interested in? What do they want to create work about? So with the Chatter Project, the group really openly expressed that they wanted to challenge notions of identity in later life. And they were fed up of people you know, having a perception of who they are due to their age. And then once we had sort of completed that foraging process, we then take all of those artefacts and those interests and we'll do a series of devising workshops to create material. And so in many ways, it's quite a postmodern approach. And it's not a case of me going in with a script saying, right, you stand there and you do that and we'll have a show at the end of this. It really is about working together for a process of co-collaboration and co-creation to see what happens and what emerges in the space. And it's a process of discovery. And sometimes there will be an end product. 
and other times there won't be. And it's been all about the process. And actually what has occurred is the, is the emotional shift, the shift in well-being. In a way, I suppose that could be argued as a product. Um, but the process is more concerned about the individual than creating an artistic outcome. Sure. So in terms of the research, what have some of your findings been or what findings in relation to well-being have emerged at the forefront of your research? I think in terms of well-being, similar to other studies that have taken place, is we know it improves well-being. It can have a positive over effect on the way that older adults are feeling and how they're encountering the world around them. But I think what's special about my research project is that from the data, which is interviews with older adults, what is starting to emerge is this idea of how applied theatre with adults aged over 65 can create shame resilience. So I'm finding out that shame is occurring with this age group due to ageism. And so ageism such as this idea of, you know, we must, you know, women must be slim and wrinkle free and, you know, must not have a grey hair in sight. And older men must be powerful and strong and sexually competent. And these narratives create a sense of shame, which is what Brené Brown describes as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing we are flawed and therefore unworthy of acceptance and belonging. And what I'm learning is that when older adults take part in regular theatre activities, it creates shame resilience. So levels of shame go down and levels of pride go up. And this idea of shame resilience is a term, again, which was coined by Brené Brown. And she details that shame can be reduced when we decrease the themes of being trapped, powerless and isolated, and to increase opportunities to experience empathy by increasing connection, power and freedom from what she defines as the shame web. And I feel that that is what is happening in these workshops. Can you describe the content of the workshops? Can you talk me through that? Absolutely. So our workshops run for um, an hour and a half and participants enter and if I was to give an overview of a basic structure is we always have a check-in so we always spend time going around the circle where we share what's been happening in our lives what's new and on the outside people may think well that's just chatting what you know why bother chatting when you could be doing the work but I argue that that is so important because it's a moment of connection and a moment of us building relationships and actually it's in those brief 10 minutes at the start of the workshop where sometimes we will learn more about the participant then than we will in any other part of the session. And that is so valuable. And it's also another opportunity for the participant to feel heard and to feel valued. And then we'll go into um, some sort of physical warm up where we're just reacquainting ourselves with our bodies and also introducing this idea of um, how important it is to embody our physicality and how physicality is part of theatre, whatever that may look like for them. And then the bulk of the workshop will be going through a series of activities, which are really just um, a series of offerings and suggestions that are made to the group. And like any sort of theatre workshop, that differs every week. 
Um, so, for example, we've done monologue writing this term. Um, we have done some choreography with objects that um, speak to them. We have uh, done some improvisation scenes. Um, this week, we were creating duologues about perceptions and how people speak to older adults in shops. Um, but I think what's really important to note is that it's all led by them. You know, it's all based upon what they want to do and what they want to explore. And I think the most important part of the workshop in many ways, actually, is what we have in the middle, which is the tea break. And again, people probably think it's just a group of people having a cup of tea. But actually, I argue that the tea break is an opportunity to act as a moment of care. Because it's that process of you are preparing something for somebody and you are offering it to them. And it also creates a sense of community, connectivity as we chat over a biscuit. It can be a space where sometimes potential safeguarding issues come up that we need to be aware about. And so the tea break must not be underestimated. And I now would never ever run a project with older adults where we didn't have a tea break because that's how important I think it is. Yeah, I completely agree. And I am 100% pro check-in pro tea break even if it means I get a cup of coffee myself the 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 most interesting thing I find about about the check-ins and especially across many many groups that I've worked with or I'm currently working with is that participants or people that then their their desire to be listened to is is so fundamental to the cohesion and the progress when involved in a communal or shared activity and especially I work with a 14 to 18 group youth theatre group um, and the check-in is their favorite thing like they know and I <laughs> and I hope it's not a slight on the work that we're doing but it's you know it's it's completely about hi hi Tom can't wait to check in I'm going to tell you about this and, and they've got it already at the forefront of their mind before they've even thought about what we're going to be rehearsing, what we're going to be doing. Um, I, I wondered if, do you or have you experienced dips within the group? So somebody who may be absolutely flying through the first half, actually by the time after the tea break, their, their energy may diminish or their enthusiasm um, may diminish it also. And, and how do you go about approaching that? How do you go about kind of either encouraging them to re-engage or allowing them to, to potentially remove themselves from the session? Of course. I mean, due to the nature of the demographic that I work with, we regularly encounter um, deterioration in health, physical health. And for example, in the Chatter Project this week, we had a gentleman who has just had his cataracts removed. So his eye was very weepy and he was quite uncomfortable. And that had made his overall sense of well-being really dip. And so in, in those situations, what I do is I really reassure participants to only do what is comfortable for you. I say to them, you know, you know yourself better than anybody. So please measure your own well-being in the session. And if you want to sit out, that's absolutely fine. And I think similarly to if you're working with young people, if you have participants who are taking a break and sitting out, I don't therefore think, right, they're to the side and that's where we leave them. 
I'll find other ways to engage them. So for example, with this gentleman who needed to take 10 minutes, I said, you know, while you're sat here, um, can you let me know if there's anybody who um, is being you know, particularly active in the conversations that are having, or if you overhear any bits of dialogue that perhaps could be a really good um, starting point for us to create a story about, or could be a lead that we could follow. So it's just finding gentle ways to still keep people engaged and also not being afraid to, to accept what that person is giving you. So equally, if they say, you know, actually, I just want to sit here and quiet, that's totally fine as well. So again, it's being person-centred and having a really bespoke approach to everybody that you're working with. In your experience, Georgia, how common is applied work within your field? Is it something that's quite popular within the UK, drama, therapy or applied work? I would say that it is still very much an emerging field. Um, there are practitioners who do work in this field, such as um, Sue Mayo, who works a lot with Magic Me, or David Slater, um, who founded IntelliKey. Um, but it is still very much up and coming, in, in my opinion. Although creative ageing interventions have been documented as, as happening in the UK since the 1970s, it just hasn't gained as much traction as, say, theatre with young people. And I think that's a societal response to where we're placing um, emphasis on who we work with, because a lot of work with young people is about building them up to launch them. And whereas society views older adults very much as um, as a final destination, you know, um, this idea of the future and ageing doesn't seem to exist. And so I argue that's one of the reasons why not as much investment has been put into the creative ageing field. But I also think that in a society where in less than 20 years, one in four will be aged over 65, that will tip. And we need to start addressing that this is a growing part of our society and therefore we need to be placing emphasis on older adults as well as working with young people. They shouldn't be in competition. They should sit together side by side and be equally valued. I think you're completely right and, and maybe there's actually a little bit of an injustice there in, in regards to our, our theatres and, and creative hubs not prioritising this sort of work how how would you suggest we go about encouraging new applied practitioners or artists to maybe um, delve into these areas of practice with this client group well that is a good question um i think it's about working with people who are open and i think it's actually addressing our unconscious biases because age is a, prote a protected characteristic. And so I think it's really unpicking where do we stand in relation to this work? What's our background? What are we bringing to the space? And what, like I say, unconscious biases that we may hold, which may restrict us from working with community groups that we absolutely should be engaging with. Um, and I think to inspire people it's almost as if it's, the word inspire is a bit of a funny phrase to use but I think the more that this work is commissioned and supported and is celebrated and is brought from the fringes to the mainstream the more people will 
acknowledge that this could be an option for them as well, both as a participant, but also as a facilitator. And I think that sometimes people just aren't aware that this work is happening and taking place. So we really need to be putting a spotlight on it and promoting this practice. This episode goes on to inspire and encourage artists and creatives to potentially venture into work with older adults. And I am I am certainly sure that, that your work and your research that you've shared today will certainly do that. Um, I'd, could I ask, in relation to funding, in your experience, is it easier to be funded for these sorts of projects because there's some... There's some potential link there with um, welfare and mental health and, and potentially collaboration um, with the NHS. Um, my initial response is no, it is not easier to fundraise for this area of work. I think it um, faces very similar uh, struggles as any area of applied theatre practice. Um, you, A lot of people draw a natural link between creative aging or applied theatre of older adults and the NHS um, but in all the years I've worked in this field which is nearly 10 years I've only ever had one commission from the NHS and so I think that's really to do again with cutbacks and funding restrictions and there just simply isn't enough money to go around um, so yeah creative aging and work with older adults absolutely is not prioritised over any other field of okay. work. So after the completion of your PhD, what are your next steps? Well, I would like to continue this research because it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, and I appreciate that the research that I'm doing at the moment is quite is with quite a small pool of participants. So I would like to do it on a much larger scale and perhaps even do it on a national scale. I mean, how amazing would it be to be able to identify this work across the United Kingdom in all of the different nations? And I would also like to return back to the care sector and examine this work in that context within care homes. But I also believe that this idea that theatre and applied theatre can create shame resilience is transferable. So long term, I would be interested in seeing can the model be applied in other settings, such as the criminal justice system, and see what are the outcomes there? Because I have yet to come across anybody else who has drawn the link between applied theatre and shame resilience. And so I think it could be a framework which could be implemented and hopefully have a positive impact on many people. So inspiring and interesting, Georgia. Thank you again. How do people get in contact with you if they want to get in touch? If they'd like to find out more, um, you can go to my website, which is www.georgiabowers.co.uk, or I'm also on Twitter, which is at georgiabowers91. Um, or they would be very, very welcome to email me. And I'm sure we can pop my email in the um, interview notes. Great. I shall include your email and also your website in the episode description. Um, and I would just like to say a massive thank you for your time um, and just for, for sharing all of your incredible work. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Georgia. Thanks. Thank you again for having me. It's been lovely to speak with you. Bye.